Uh, welcome to Redemption Parker. I am Mark. It is a pleasure to open up God's Word with you this morning. We are in this series, Summer in the Psalms, if you're just joining us, uh, just looking at the different songs of God's people. It's songs and prayers to give us language and context and framework to process all of life, the ups and the downs, the highs and lows. And so we've been looking at different things. And last week, uh, Ryan preached on Psalm 103 and just did an awesome job. I listened to it or he talks about, uh, forget not all the Lord's benefits. Don't forget the gospel, rehearse the gospel to yourself. And then also bless the Lord as you remember the gospel, you bless the Lord. And so he did a great job with that today. We're going to be in Psalm eight. So you can begin to work your way there. Uh, it's good to be back with you. I was gone last week because um, we got to spend a week in the mountains. And so uh, Sunday, we, we got to drive up and go to Beaver Creek. And we're Acts 29, the church planning network that we're a part of, had a pastors and wives retreat. And um, he, who here is like, people fall into like two categories usually, like mountain and ocean people. Like who's a mountain per Like you got some mountain people. Yeah, you live in Colorado. That's good. That's good. Any, any ocean people out there? Okay, yeah. Okay, so my wife is all about the mountains. Like, that's her jam. Like, she wants to drive in the mountains. She wants to drink coffee in the mountains. She wants to hike in the mountains. So last week was awesome for her. I, I, I like it. I, I'm more of an ocean guy. I like to be by the ocean, on the ocean. My, my favorite is under the ocean, scuba diving. That's, that's where I behold the grandeur and glory of creation in me. But, but those are the two. Like, any, any desert people? Like, I just like to be in the desert. You could be a city person. Any city people? Like, no. Okay, that's why you moved to the suburbs. Okay. Um, I mean, then, then the list gets pretty, pretty low. Like, Texas Plains people. Like, tumbleweed. Here we go. We got, like, the tumbleweed over here. Uh, uh, bayou marsh people? Like, swamp people? No? Those swamp people? Okay. Uh, but... So we had a great time in the mountain. We, we got to go to Beaver Creek and then we came back for a day and then we, we tagged along with the youth group as they went to Buena Vista and did whitewater rafting and, and uh, it, it was just awesome. But I, I remembered something last week that we have this, this problem. We have this light pollution problem. And you don't even notice it until uh, the moment where uh, you're way far, far away from the city and uh, the sky clears and the, the, moon, the sun and then the moon set. And, and you, we, we've been there, right? Where like the 10 billion stars just kind of explode on the tapestry of the sky. And, and you look up and one word comes to your mouth in that moment. Wow. And you just spend some time and until your neck starts to hurt. And, and if you look up and you see the, the, the Milky Way and you feel like you can be uh, falling into that, that there is this moment that, uh, of, of grandeur uh, of creation that, that can just capture your attention. And uh, we, we were meant to look at that as a signpost to, to see something bigger and greater than even that. But we have this light pollution problem. But, but David, who's going to write Psalm 8, he, he doesn't have that problem. In fact, go back 200 years and no one had that problem. This was a normal occurrence to just be caught off guard by the, the beauty and glory of, uh, of the stars. And so uh, David... W- w- even more than us, as a, as a as shepherd, as a teenager, he would uh, take the, the, the flock out at night and, and just imagine, I, I bet in one week, he spent more time than we spend in a lifetime just looking up and beholding the stars. He, he didn't have that problem. He didn't have a light pollution problem. 
But, but I recognized also we have a different kind of light pollution problem. Not, not just from our cities and, and our buildings and our streets and our homes. There's another kind of light pollution problem that, that dims and, and blocks our, our view of, uh, of the glory and majesty of God. It's his, it comes on our TV screens, our computer screens, our tablets, and our ubiquitous phones. This, this kind of two-dimensional light that we just constantly, constantly, constantly put in our faces. Ten years ago, a guy by the name of uh, Nicholas Carr wrote the book, The Shallows, and it was what the internet is doing to our brains. And, and the argument of the book was, it's making us stupid. <laughs> like, it, it is shallowing us out. Like, remember when you had to remember your friend's phone numbers? Like, I, some of you don't even know your own phone number. Like, you're just like, I'll text you. Whatever. Like, I don't, I don't know my wife's number. Like, but, but back then, remember when you had to learn how to read a map? Like, try, try that now. Like, you just had to learn the city and, and, and go around, but, but now we don't. And, and just on all these ways, it's kind of thinning us out, this ubiquitous screen, this ubiquitous, ubiquitous knowledge. And it's not only that, the social media is thinning us out relationally, thinning us out with the ability to have a sustained conversation or a sustained thought, uh, sustained kind of reflection on something, which, by the way, is all necessary to grow as a Christian. To be able to think, to, to be able to pause, to be able to ponder, to be able to relate. These, this is what it means to grow and, and to know the Lord. And so we have a light pollution problem, one that David didn't have, right? And David would be looking up. And it's no wonder that the psalmist, like David, would, would so often point to creation as the signpost to the glory and grandeur of God. So David will write in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. They're, they're, they're talking to us, but we're not listening because we have a light pollution problem. We, we have, uh, we, we've, we've missed out on what God is inviting us into but Psalm 8 is an invitation for us to pause and to reset and to think. It's an invitation to, want one, just ponder creation. But it's, it's more than that. It's an invitation to ponder the God that is above that. And it's an invitation to be in awe and wonder. But there is also something that's going to be surprising this. Something counterintuitive. Something paradoxical. He says there is a kind of glory that you can only see if you're a little child. And so may God make that true in our lives today. So uh, Psalm chapter 8 is where we're going to start. I'll read it uh, and, and then we'll dive in. I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. 
May it be on our hearts and our minds and our lips this week. David is reflecting. He's pondering. In fact, when he says, when I look at the heavens, the word could be ponder or consider. When I take some time to do this, some some things are stirred in his soul. And you notice that verse 1 and verse 9 are exactly the same. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that's a Hebrew poetry that is called an inclusio. It it is uh, the bookends, but really it is the destination that verses 2 through 8 want to take us to, that we can get to a place and and there's there's an exclamation point at the end. And that, that, that means that we can get to a place with loud shouts of praise and say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But we have to first follow the other verses to get there. He says how majestic. Now, if you look up majesty in the dictionary, you're going to get imposing grandeur, (laughs) a a, a weight of dignity. This is majesty. And so we talk about things being majestic. And, and being in Colorado, we've got some mountains that, that you can go stand on and, and, and stand at and look at, and, and they are majestic. Like, you feel your smallness at the base of, of some of those. And, and when you feel that smallness, you're also sensing the awe and the majesty of that which you're standing in front of. And these mountains, they, they aren't to be messed with. Like, if you mess around, you, you can die on these things. And so there's a little bit of fear in there as well. Now, our, our largest mountain, Mount uh, Elbert, I believe, is 14,450 feet. And you're like, man, that is massive. Uh, but then until you realize the Himalayans make our mountains look like hills. Until you realize that uh, Mount Elbert's not even half the height of Everest. Until you realize that if you were to just get to base camp at Everest, you'd have to climb Mount Elbert and then another 3,000 vertical feet and 17,500 feet to get to base camp at Everest. Now, th- that's a different kind of majesty, right? And as you climb there and, and you want to get up to the 29,000 plus feet, when you cross 26,000, they're going to say you are now entering into the death zone. The death zone where uh, your cells in your body start to die from lack of oxygen. You get hypoxia. You get delirious. You have strokes. You have heart attacks. uh, You have uh, altitude sickness that can kill you. In fact, if any of us were just in this moment, just taken there, even if we had the clothes and even the oxygen and dropped at Mount Everest at the top without any kind of acclimating and going back and forth like they do, we would die in a matter of minutes. And, And you stand before Everest and you're like, man, that is majestic <laughs> that that is uh, uh, amazing but but then you think about what about the one who just speaks and everest appears what about the one who uh, speaks and and storms come up and storms die down what about the one who goes to his friend's funeral and says knock it off quit being dead come out lazarus Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, so, so here's what David's going to, he's going to see a glory. He's going to feel a fear. And then he's going to remember and discover a truth. So he, he, he's looking up, he's pondering, he's seeing the glory. You have set your glory above the heavens. So he's not even really pointing to the heaven. He says, above and beyond all of that that I can see, your glory reigns. Verse 3, when I look at the he- your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and stars, which you have set in place. See, David understood that uh, the creation was meant to do something in his soul. 
It was meant to lift his eyes, to take his, his focus off of himself for a while. Uh, a few years ago, I heard uh, John Piper, Pastor John Piper, talk about the uh, difference between microscopes and telescopes. And, and we live in a microscope world when we need a telescope world. He says, in the microscope world, a microscope takes that which is infinitesimally small and, and you go to a pond and you put it on the glass thing and you remember this in high school biology and you, you put the, the slide under the microscope and it gets blown up 10,000, 20, whatever, how many times and, and you look at it and you're man, there's a lot of life in there and you see the amoeba and they're, they're doing all those things that they do. Uh, but, but what it's doing is it's making that which is infinitesimally small, huge. And, and we, we can do this with our own lives. We can say, man, I'm going to look at the microscope. Look at my problems. Let me put on the next slide. What's in my bank account? Oh, my goodness. What's on the next thing? Look at my social media. Did anyone like my post? Oh, my goodness. And we can spend our time just staring down through the microscope and be like, look how huge this is. Look how bad this is. Look at all my problems. Well, why is this person doing this to me? And, and, and we can get what, what, what Luther said uh, is our problem. Incurvitus in se. It's, it's Latin for we curved in on ourselves. And this is the problem with sin. As we focus on, on our own lives, it, we get curved in and we get smaller and smaller and smaller, but it feels really, really big. But I've always said the most miserable people are the people that are constantly looking through the microscope, constantly focused on their life. They're, they're miserable in themselves. They're miserable to be around when it's all about them. And, and Piper says we, we need to put aside the, the microscope and, and bring in the telescope. The telescope takes that which is massive and huge and mind-blowingly big and brings it into view to comprehend and behold and to ponder. And so this is what David is doing. He's looking up. He's pondering what's going on. But, but David did not know as he looked up at kind of the, the Milky, well, he didn't know it was the Milky Way. He, he didn't know that in, in our, our galaxy, there are 400 billion stars. He, he didn't know that our own sun was, was just one ordinary star. Which astronomers say that about half the stars are bigger and half the stars are smaller in our Milky Way galaxy. He, he didn't know. He, he just got to, like, he had no Hubble telescope to, to look to. He had no website to go pull up those images that you and I can look at. He, he didn't know about stars that would make our star seem like a candlelight in a field. He, he didn't know. Do did, did you, did you know about V.Y. Scooty? V.Y. Scooty is 17,000 times bigger than our sun. In fact, I have a, a, a picture just of the comparison. U.Y. Scooty, sorry, U.Y. Scooty. So, so you see that pixel, that, that's our sun. And U.Y. Scooty, close to the center of the Milky Way galaxy, is 17,000 times bigger than our sun. You could fit, fit our entire solar system inside of it with lots of room to breathe. And it doesn't take long when you start to look at astronomy for, your, for, for the numbers and the mind and the light years and all those things, for your mind to just have no concept, uh, just to kind of blow your mind. He, he didn't know that. But he's looking up. Here, here's what he did know. He says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, he did know that, he, he did know the God who made all those things. He, he did know that 
Even though he didn't know that there were uh, not just our galaxy, that there were, uh, as of last year, scientists estimate two trillion now. Now it's two trillion other galaxies in the universe, all with about 400 to 800 billion stars in them. Like, it, it, it is intended to just blow your mind. But he knew that there was a God. And when he says that the, uh, the work of your fingers, this is, uh, this is kind of a, a poetic way. That there's a couple things that is revealed in that. So in Genesis, it says God speaks and the universe comes into existence. Again, that's very easy for God to do. But, but here he says the work of your fingers. Again, he's pointing out this was not difficult for God. Like he didn't have to lift with his legs so he didn't strain his back when he made the Milky Way galaxy. He, he, didn't, he, didn't even have to, he didn't even have to flex his biceps. He didn't even have to get his hands really involved. It's the work of his fingers and the universe comes into place. So David knew that God was powerful. But, but that language is also poetic. So, so David chooses the work of your fingers because he also knows that God is artistic. That God is an artist. He delights out of the sheer overflow of his own joy. He creates. He creates galaxies that you and I will never see just because he's like, man, I like that. And like all good artists, uh, if you look at the art, there, you can see something of the artist in the art, right? And so this is what is it. And if, if we consider that, we, we start to just start to comprehend the, the, gra- the great vastness of the universe and, and the things that our minds can't even wrap around. When we start to do that, we, we, we realize, man, this is saying something about the artist. But, but as you look up, you, you realize that, man, good theologians and astronomers agree on one thing. We are infinitesimally tiny, 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 tiny in the universe. And when you sit to think in that for a little bit, David began to feel some fear. Man, if, and again, he didn't know that there were two trillion other galaxies. He was just like, I think this is the world. But, but he was feeling fear. Man, how can it be? How is it possible that the universe is this massive? How could God possibly care or know about me. You ever feel that? So, so the modern atheistic kind of narrative science in, in our culture today, it, we actually have these kind of uh, two opposing truths that we want to shove in our uh, kids' minds through uh, education of otherwise. So, so they'll go to class and they'll say, hey, you're all an accident. It's just time plus chance plus primordial ooze and, and billions and billions, all these things. You're just an accident of all those things. And so uh, the bell rings, have fun, kids, go on out. And, and they walk into their next class and it's like, the most important thing is that you know that you're worth, you're valuable. That you have a good sense of self-esteem. That, that you live your truth. That's so, and you'd be like, but I just came from this class that said I'm nothing. And you're saying, I'm everything? Yeah, and, and our culture is just, hey, let's not, let's not bring those two things together. Let's not point out the contradiction there. Let's just kind of live in that. But it's insanity. And, and every now and again, uh, every now and again, an, an atheist or, will, will actually be like, no, it is insanity. And they'll try, but they can't ever really live it out. 
I, I think of uh, 1977, the Voyager 1. We sent out uh, a, a space probe to take up-close pictures of Jupiter and Saturn and one of Saturn's moons. And it accomplished its mission in 1984. And uh, then they didn't know what to do. They didn't think it was going to last much longer. And so they just sent it out on this uh, elliptical orbit that would leave our solar system eventually. And and at that time, a very famous atheist astronomer, Carl Sagan, asked NASA, hey, could you turn that around and just take a picture of the Earth before it goes? And and in 84, they said, no, we're too close to the sun. It'll damage our camera. And so, uh, but but he kept asking. And so in 1990, they said, okay, it's really now just at the very edge of the, 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 our solar system, and, and we want to keep getting data from it, but we'll take one last picture because that's going to take up too much energy if we keep doing this. And, and so they turned it around 3.6 billion miles away from planet Earth. They turn it around and they take a picture, 60 frames, 640,000 pixels, and uh, it, it, would, it first recorded on a tape recorder on, on Voyager 1. Can you imagine that? And then it sent that data of the 3.6 billion miles, traveling at the speed of light, it took five and a half hours for, for each pickle, pixel to come in. And it came in one by one, and eventually 640,000 pixels came in. And this picture came up. You, you can't really see it. Um, so there's a, a sun flare on the camera, but in the sun flare, there's a dot. It's a pale blue dot. And on that pale, that, that, that is Earth. That's the furthest away that anyone's ever had a picture taken. (laughs) 1977, I was two years old. I'm I'm smiling in the picture. Do you see me? (laughs) And and Sagan has this book, and and he has this great quote. It's a a long quote. I'm not going to quote the whole thing uh, about uh, that pale blue dot. But, but I'll, I'll, he basically starts and saying, hey, everyone that's ever uh, been born, lived, has died there. All the kings that have come, all the kingdoms that have come and gone, uh, all the politicians, all the saints and sinners, the good and bad, that they all have done there. And, and it's just this infinitesimally small little speck in the universe. That's our home. And, and here's how he concludes it. He says, our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this pale point of light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. You can leave that picture up there. It says, in, listen to what he says here. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. He goes on. So it has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. So so this is what he's saying. It's like, look, it's all, we're infinitesimally small. It's all pointless. But but notice what he does now. He's... He's rejected, earlier in the, in the uh, quote, he's rejected all religion, all truth claims. He's rejected all that. And so here's his conclusion. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Now, now atheists do this all the time. 
We reject all moral authority. We reject all absolute truth. We reject all these things. But in the end, they can't really live like it. So we're going to go back and borrow some Christian, Judeo-Christian ethical capital and say, hey, we should deal kindly with one another. Why? Why? In a universe devoid of meaning, there is no difference between torturing babies for pleasure and feeding the poor. There's not. And yet they will constantly come back. So uh, another guy, um, not Peter Singer, I forget his, he's a professor of Harvard psychology. In 2008, he wrote an article called The Stupidity of Dignity. And what he was railing against was in bioethics that, that there seemed to be ethics were slowing the progress of, of medical advancement. And so he, he, was, saying, he was railing against Judea, the Christian worldview that, that says, man, <clears throat> people matter and we can't just do whatever we want. And so he's like, it's stupid. That's all just an evolutionary byproduct to preserve the race. So we've got to... And then his grand conclusion, his grand conclusion in the, in the stupidity of dignity is this. They're all hypocrites because if we don't do this now, millions of people are going to die. And so we've got to do this. But again, you have to ask the question, so what? So what if millions of people are going to die if it's all meaningless? It's all meaningless. So, so you can come to the conclusion, well, it's all meaningless, but it's hard to live that out. And this isn't, this is, that's one option. The second option, more where David is at in this point is, man, the universe is massive. It's big. How can God possibly have me on his mind. How can he think about me? And, and, and he's wrestling with this. But then there's a third option, that the universe is massive and God is massive and God has you on his mind. Remember, though, how easy it was to create the universe, how easy it was for God to create with his fingers the two trillion galaxies. See, God is not stressed or strained in any way. the, The bigness of the universe is no limit to his knowledge of your life. The Bible is going to say this on repeat. Last week in Psalm 103, the Lord knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows us. Psalm 90, he knows the number of our days. Luke chapter 12, he knows the number of hairs on our head. Some of you, that's more than others. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, have God closed the lilies of the field And the birds of the air, how much more does he care about you? It's not a strain in any way, shape, or form for God to have intimate knowledge, intimate care of you. So that leads to a truth that is remembered by by David and then a truth that is discovered. It says, yet you have made, uh, what is man that you're mindful of and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have, verse five, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. He remembers Genesis. He he remembers the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Why, Why does God care about this tiny blue speck? Because on this tiny blue speck in the vast cosmic universe, he made you and I to bear his image. You have worth, you have dignity, you have value because you bear the image of your maker. And it is infinite worth, infinite value. In fact, the, word that, that is, the words that are described are, are, are reserved for majesty. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion. We, we, 
We have that because it comes from him and for him. So he remembers this truth as he's wondering about the the vastness of the universe and he remembers, I am an image bearer. And right now on the planet of 7.8 billion image bearers, they all matter to God. But then there's this truth that is discovered by David or hinted at at the very least. Remember verse 2? Maybe, you, maybe you're like me. Sometimes you're reading your Bible. Everything's making sense. And then there's just some curveball. <laughs> and you're like, man, that was weird. I don't know what that means. I'll get to that later. I'll look that up in a commentary. But you never do. <laughs> right? Well, verse 2 is a, is a curveball. It says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. What in the world is he talking about there? You were talking about the stars. You were talking about the Imago Dei. I get all that. And then something about babies and infants and and establishing strength and, and, and defeating your foes. What in the world is going on there? You know, verse two is the only verse that Jesus quotes. Uh, Jesus, on the week that he would be betrayed, go to the cross, die, he comes in on Palm Sunday. And remember Palm Sunday. They, 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 we actually read about it in, in Matthew 21. In, in Palm Sunday, uh, he, he comes in and he, here's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And, and we're reminded, this is the one who, who David says, your glory is above the heavens. This is the one who whose glory is above the heavens, steps down from heaven and puts on flesh and humbles himself and takes on all of our limitations, all of our struggles, all of our pain, all of our suffering. This one gets really, 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 really low. And when he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what is he riding? He's riding a donkey, the lowest of low. And and they're singing a Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he goes into the temple and he overturns the temple and he says, this is my father's house. This is going to be a house of prayer. And he riles everyone's feathers a little bit. But then in verse 14, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The lowest of the low, the weakest of the weak, people that could do nothing for themselves. They're, they're coming to him and Jesus, the one who sets the stars in place, is meeting them where they're at, and he's healing them. It says, verse 15, but when the chief priests and and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, now listen to this, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They they keep the song going from outside. They bring it in the temple. The children are, are singing, and they're singing rightly. They're acknowledging who God is, who Jesus is, and it's only the children that acknowledge this, right? Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, <coughs> you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is what verse 2 is getting at. Psalm 8 is a paradox. On the one hand, it's the grandeur and the greatness of things that blow our mind. On the other hand, it's a kind of greatness that is even greater than that. A greatness through weakness. And so this is what he says. They're singing out... Hosanna to the son of David. And it says, they were indignant. The, the, the powerful, the ones in control, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared 
praise. Here's what's so mind-blowing about this. It's one thing to get away from the city, get away from the light pollution, and you should, and look up at the stars and be wowed by the stars and the God who created those. God wants you to do that. But again, that was easy for God. You know what wasn't easy for God? The incarnation. You know that what did take a lot of straining and striving and struggling and bleeding? Your redemption. It's this upside down kingdom. It's this paradox that there is a kind of glory that's even above the heavens. It's a glory of the lowest of the low. You can look at the stars and say God is great, but you look at the cross and you can know without a doubt God loves me. In the vast cosmic universe, the cross proves it. God knows me. He sees me. He provides for me. He loves me. So, how how do we respond in Psalm 8? I think three things that we'd want to ponder this week, maybe today. Three things. I'll have them on the screen. The first one, again, is Psalm 8 first points us to a a pondering of the glory of creation. Take some time. Go, Go for a walk. Jonathan Edwards used to just to walk in, in, his, in the woods for like an hour at a time. And he would just, it would be a worship walk because he would stop and, and look at a leaf. He, he wrote a whole essay on, on, on the spider web and how that is just glorifying God. Do you ever have eyes to see the small things and just say, man, isn't God good? So, so enjoy creation. Go to the mountains. Do something like that. The second one is glory in the Imago Dei, in yourself and others. Man, I am created in the image of God. I bear the worth and dignity and value of my maker. But even as you consider that, know that 7.8 billion people on the planet also have that worth and dignity. This is the foundation for human rights. This is the foundation for good and right justice. That, That there are people that look differently than us, have different skin color, come from different parts of the world, speak differently than us, different socioeconomic, different backgrounds, different sins than ours, different voting records than ours, and all of them bear the image of God and they are worthy of all dignity, honor, and respect. So maybe just as you're driving, look over and be like, wow, there's an image bearer. (laughs) There's another one. Augustine has this great quote. I, I should have put it in my notes, but uh, he says, you know, we, we travel over, over mountains and rivers to go behold creation, and all the while we pass by ourselves without taking notice. I asked earlier, any city people? The city is the highest concentration of the glory of God because that's where the most image bearers reside, and that should matter to us. So, so we glory in creation, we glory in the Imago Dei, and then finally we glory in God's strength shown through weakness. We look at the cross. Paul says it's foolishness, but for us, to those that are getting saved, it is the power of God. We look at the cross and say, God loves me, and God loves you. I I was praying this week for Redemption Parker, and I thought, man, what would it look like if we as a church Psalm 8 just kind of got deep, deep into our souls. Deep into our souls. Imagine what, what this would do. If What Psalm 8 is telling us. I think, first of all, we would pray bold, faith-filled, world-changing prayers. Not because we have any power, but we look at the God who sets the stars in place and we say, God, if you can do that, can you do this? 
And we just ask giant, big, bold prayers. And, and from there, we would, we would have bold, death-defying, courageous leaps of faith. So, so often we're looking through the microscope and we're like, I don't have the power. I can't do this. I can't do this. Well, God delights to show his power in weakness. This is what the psalm is showing us. So you're like, God, I'm not smart enough. I, I don't know all the words. I, I don't have all the capacity. I don't have the right degrees. I don't have any of this. And so God, I know you like to delight to use weakness for your glory. So use my life. I'm just going to take a step of faith and hope that you meet me there. This is, this is what the kind of church we would be. If this got deep into our souls, it would fuel our praise. <clears throat> Remember the goal of, of this is to come to a place where we say, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the goal if we see this. And then finally, we would have unconditional love. We would see image bearers as image bearers, even our enemies as people worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. And we would love people sacrificially. May God make that so. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to this table. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for Psalm 8 and the way that you display your glory in the heavens, and more than that, the way you display your glory on the cross. Lord, let us be a people that just remember these truths, delight in them, turn off the lights, get rid of the light pollution, and just ponder who you are this week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.